If you think 2020 has been rough, let me tell you about 520. 520 B.C. Things were not what they should have been in Israel. God's people were stuck. Stuck in a rut, in a funk. They were just eking out an existence, living paycheck to paycheck. There was little joy, little peace, little enjoyment and fulfillment, little meaning as to why they even existed. There was just this constant drone of blah. Life was not what it was supposed to be. There was no hope or enthusiasm for the future. Kind of like us, I guess. For some of us, our lives have not quite turned out the way we thought 20 years ago. Life is not what we thought it would be. Where we once had enthusiasm and hope for our future, somewhere along the way, things changed. And maybe this year is when it all started for you. Somehow it just feels like everyone is stuck right now, in a funk, messy hair, don't care, battling a serious case of the blahs. And that can make you feel hopeless when it just drags on and on and on. And it can be depressing too. It's the Christmas season, and yet for many people, if they're honest, they'll tell you, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just not feeling it this year. I get that. And if that's you, if you're just not feeling it this year, if you're ready to be done with this year, then the prophet Haggai is here to help. We're starting our Advent series today, which I've entitled Near. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. If you don't know where that book is, or if you're, you're, the pages of your Old Testament still are stuck together there, Haggai is toward the end of the Old Testament, the third house from the end of the block there. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It's a short book, just two chapters, and it's perfect for people who just want a fresh start. It's perfect for people who feel stuck, for people who feel like they're just eking out an existence, living paycheck to paycheck, and just waiting until they get COVID and die, or until Jesus comes back. Let me ask you, do you want a fresh start today? Then the book of Haggai is just for you. Haggai just might be what your heart needs for Christmas this year. I mean, who knew? A a little, oft-neglected book tucked away at the back end of the Old Testament could be exactly what your heart needs for Christmas this year. And that's because this book is all about the human heart. It's about the human heart getting caught up in the heart of God. It's about the heart of God gushing forth in love for sinners who don't love and aren't as committed as they should be. It's about how God's heart goes pitter-patter for sinners and about how He just can't get close enough to His people. Wow. And people think the Old Testament is boring? Really? So if you've been in a funk this year, 
and who hasn't, then this little book is just for you, just for your heart. But back to the context of Haggai before we dive in. It was 520 B.C., and it felt like 2020 A.D. The Persians had defeated the Babylonians, and now they were the top dog. 18 years earlier, the Persian king Cyrus allowed the Jews to return home to Israel. Remember, they had been in exile in Babylon because their hearts turned away from Yahweh, from serving him. But Persia came along and beat up Babylon, and Cyrus told God's people, you can go home and you can rebuild your temple and worship Yahweh. Rebuild the temple that those nasty, stinky Babylonians destroyed. But almost 20 years had passed since this first wave of exiles had returned home. And there was a new king in Persia, King Darius. But the temple in Jerusalem, the one that Solomon had built, still lay in ruins. God's people had long since ceased to expect any kind of dramatic intervention on God's part. And so they just kind of settled down into life, living paycheck to paycheck. And it was into this status quo, just eking our way through life, world, that the prophet Haggai came on the scene to remind Israel that God just can't get close enough to his people, that he wants to be with his people. And what we'll be reminded of today is this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, of course, we know that because we're smart Christians, aren't we? We know the Bible. We know that life is all about Jesus. But just pause a moment and look over your life from just this last week. We won't go back any further. Look over your life from this last week and think of all the ways that you made it about you. Even though you say life is all about Jesus. Life is all about Jesus, Pastor. Well, think back over this last week and all the ways that you made life about you. Think of all the ways that you huffed and puffed this week because you didn't get your way. Sorry to make y'all feel so bad at the beginning of the sermon. But that's what Haggai is doing here. The prophet Haggai is calling on us as he called on the people of God in his day to ask ourselves, where am I making life about me? In what ways have I connected everything in this world to me? In what ways have I connected every situation and experience to me and made it about me? Where have I made me the focus? Because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We just have this knee-jerk reaction to make life about us even when we functionally admit that life is about Jesus. We still live our day-to-day lives just so focused on me. And that's a sad way to live. There's no life there. I can tell you from experience, it's a sad way to live. There's no life there. There's no satisfaction. There's no enjoyment. Oh, to be sure, we think that we will be satisfied. We think that we will find fulfillment and enjoyment when we get our way. But we, our wishes, our wants, our prejudices, our preferences, can never bring true satisfaction. Only Jesus can. We can never fulfill ourselves. 
True enjoyment in life only comes through enjoying God first. And so it's a first commandment issue, really. And that's what the prophet Haggai was trying to get across to the nation of Israel in 520 B.C. So Haggai chapter 1, I hope you're there. Beginning, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So as we go along, we're going to discover that the book of Haggai is obsessed with exact dates. Six times we're going to see these, these markers, these dates that give us what the time and the place and when these things are happening, the month, the day. But why? Why does this book read like a calendar? Well, if you know your Old Testament history, back in 586 B.C., the Babylonians leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carted off the Israelites into captivity. But the prophet Jeremiah came along and had prophesied that after 70 years, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, would bring his people home again and restore them and restore their worship. So when Haggai starts preaching... It has been some 66 years since they were carted off to Babylon. 66 years since Jeremiah preached this message of hope. And a handful of people had returned home, and they were beginning to get excited about the calendar. People were having conversations. Hey, we're just a few short years away from what Jeremiah said would happen. But not everyone was excited. Some people had just kind of settled into life and they forgot just how important calendars are to the Lord. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So the world that the prophet Haggai found himself in in 520 B.C. was not an ideal one. The people of Judah had come back from captivity in Babylon it was late August. There had been obviously some level of prosperity with the people because the Lord says you live in some pretty nice homes. 
in some of the most sought-after neighborhoods. They had been watching Chip and Joanna Gaines on Fixer Upper on HGTV, and they took a cue from them and added some shiplap to their walls. Let's just admit, nobody knew what shiplap was until that show came out. But they're living in these paneled houses, the Lord says. So there's been some level of prosperity, but life was not really thrilling. No one was really satisfied. They had initially started to rebuild Solomon's temple when they returned from exile some 18 years earlier. They rebuilt the altar of sacrifice. They laid the foundation of the temple. They began baby steps in worship, but there was opposition from their enemies, and even the government got involved, and so they stopped. You can read about this in Ezra, chapters 3 and 4. They became discouraged, and they just quit the renovation project. They figured that now was not the time to rebuild the temple, and so the project was put on hold. The fact that the people say, said in verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the temple of the Lord proves that they knew it was their duty. It, they knew it was their calling to rebuild the temple, but for some eight, 15 years, they had put it off. And so it was into this culture that Haggai came on the scene preaching that the people should begin to rebuild the temple again. Now, some preachers think that this is a great passage to prompt their people to give to the new capital improvement campaign. Ooh, some pastors like the Old Testament when they start talking about building buildings. I mean, how can you argue with God's Word? It's talking about building and fixing up the church again. But this text, like the book of Ezra in Nehemiah, was not written for preachers to launch a new building campaign The prophet Haggai would roll over in his grave if we did that. Haggai's sermons were all about heart change, not capital improvements. Yahweh, through the prophet Haggai, was trying to recapture his people's hearts to win their affections again. And so instead of staying on the construction schedule and rebuilding the temple, people had just settled into life. Work, baseball, family, honey-do lists, chores. Their calendars were filling up with lots of stuff to do. And there were many reasons why. The sixth month was harvest time, and so everyone was busy with their crops Plus, the economy was on everyone's mind because King Darius had recently begun imposing more taxes on Judah, and so budgets began to tighten. Everyone was pinching pennies, and rebuilding the temple took a back seat to the rest of life. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted them to look over, their lives. Notice two times, in verse 5 and in verse 8, Yahweh tells them to Consider your ways. That phrase, consider your ways in the Hebrew is literally set your heart on your roads. Set your heart on your ways. What does it mean to set your heart on a road? To set your heart on some asphalt. Well, obviously God doesn't mean for them literally to set their hearts in the middle of the road. What he's saying is this, think, reflect, Ponder what's going on in your lives. Look over your life. Look over your ways. And this isn't morbid introspection either. 
as if they are supposed to get neurotic and try to find every sin in their life. Listen, we could never do that. We sin so much every single day. There is no way we could catalog all the sins that we commit in just one day. And so the Lord is not asking them to get morbidly introspective and be neurotic about cataloging their sins. He's simply telling them to do an inventory of their life, to look over their ways so that they can see why they are not fulfilled, so they can see why they aren't enjoying life. Why were they not fulfilled? Why did they work so hard only to have their money disappear so quickly? Why weren't they satisfied with life? The answer is that Yahweh was not first in their affections. They lost sight of their calling. Public worship just became optional. Going to church just became optional. And so the Lord was trying to get their attention. That's why the economy was suffering in 520 B.C. Inflation. Grocery prices going up. That's why taxes were increasing. That's why their crops were disappointing. Yahweh was just being faithful to his promise in Deuteronomy 28. You can read it in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord told them, if you turn away from worshiping me, then I will discipline you. I'll stop the rain. I'll dry out your crops. I'll send mildew. So God was just being God here. He was being faithful to his promises. Isn't that what you want God to do? Don't you want him to be faithful to his promises? Well, God was doing just that in 520 B.C. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes Jesus will mess with your world just to get your attention. And when that happens, that's just Jesus being faithful to his promises that he will be faithful to complete the work that he began in you. Doesn't God do this with you sometimes? Have you ever had Jesus just mess with your world? Has he ever allowed some circumstances to occur in order to recapture your heart? Well, of course he has. He does that because he loves you and he's committed to you and he's not giving up on you. Now, some caution here. Be careful that you don't read into everything that happens in your life and assume that, one, God is disciplining you, or two, trying to get your attention. He may be, but just because your dishwasher breaks down does not mean that Jesus is disciplining you or trying to get your attention. Maybe your dishwasher just broke down because that's what appliances eventually do. More often than not, Jesus doesn't use broken appliances to get our attention. He uses His Word, especially the preaching of His Word in public worship week in and week out. That's how He typically speaks to us to get our attention. So just be careful you don't start seeing every challenge and every setback and every broken appliance as God disciplining you or Him trying to get your attention. But we can say from the book of Haggai that that is exactly what was happening here because the text tells us that. That is what Yahweh was doing with Judah here. It's why he sent Haggai to them, to help them connect the dots. Oh, everything is falling apart in our world? Oh, our hearts aren't worshiping the Lord? We haven't rebuilt his temple. Make the connection. 
He sent Haggai to tell them, here's why what is happening is happening in your life. You drink your wine, but you don't even have enough to get drunk. You just have a few sips of wine. That's all you have. You have clothes, but you're still not warm. You eat, but it's like you're stuck in a meal rut. You just want some new meal, some new recipe. You work hard, but when you deposit the check, all the bills show up, and you wonder where all your money goes. God's trying to help them connect the dots. They had some things, but they weren't satisfied. They didn't have any fulfillment. They just weren't enjoying life. Now, understand that God is not a Mr. Krabby Pants, okay? When he confronts them about their houses, God is not against us having homes or doing some home renovation where we add some shiplap to our living room walls. God is not against that. He's not even against them building their houses first when they come back from exile. you got to have a home. You need shelter. But after they built their homes, they should have turned their energies to the temple to restoring public worship. In fact, it appears that they built some nice houses because that word paneled is used to describe the walls in Solomon's temples. Temple. So they had some pretty nice homes, it seems. But the point here is that they lost focus. They forgot that the temple was where God said that He would meet with them, where He would draw near to them in communion. They forgot that God loves to draw near to His people, that God loved being with His people, and they weren't awestruck by that anymore. The temple was the outward, visible reminder that Yahweh wanted to be close to His people. And by refusing to restore it, they were saying, it doesn't matter if the Lord is present with us. We have nice homes with Joanna Gaines-approved shiplap. When we get the economy stimulated and booming again, and we can pay our taxes to King Darius, then we'll make time for God. And so at worst, they were saying that grace was available to them apart from the very means of grace. And so to not build the house, the temple, was to not want the Lord. This was a first commandment problem. Church became optional for God's people. Don't ever sleep on this truth, Grace. Public worship is God's gift to us. Don't ever forget that. He meets us in word and sacrament. He meets us with His grace in the very means of grace. Church is where we hear His Word, where we enjoy fellowship with Him. It's where we come to hear that we are forgiven, to hear again that Jesus cannot remember our sins. It's where we come to experience green pastures and still waters. It's where we come to rest. And this is what God's people had let let slip through their cracks. And it's an ever-ready temptation for God's people in any age. But Haggai says something so shocking in verse 8 that you might have to read it twice. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to read verse 8 twice. Look at verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go up to the hills and bring wood 
and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go get wood, build the house, and let me take pleasure in it and be glorified. Wow, that's not how many churches think. Why in the world do we show up on Sunday? To bring God pleasure. Hmm, that's a hard sell in our culture, isn't it? which is so fixated on meeting felt needs. So many churches just try to make church pleasurable for the people. They want to make church cool and hip and attractive. And so they appeal to the wants and needs of people and not the glory of God. How sad. Listen, biblical worship is all about crafting church services that cause God to take pleasure in what is happening and which bring Him glory. Remember, it's all about Jesus. We're smart Christians. We know that. It's all about Jesus. And so Christ-centered church services where the gospel is central, where sinners hear that they are forgiven, where sinners are reassured of God's love, where the person and work of Jesus is lifted high, those are church services that please God, and if that's your goal as a church, then you most likely won't grow big, and you, won't probably, you probably won't have three or four services, but you'll be biblical. You'll be a Haggai 1-8 church, and you'll give God pleasure and bring Him glory, and you cannot go wrong when you do that. In her book, up with worship, how to quit playing church, Anne Ortland said that this should be the heartbeat of church services where we gather and we tell Jesus this, Lord, this is all for you. This is to give you pleasure. This is to make you delighted with us. That's the heart attitude that will make a church great. Think about what grace would look like if we showed up on Sunday mornings or whenever we showed up and said, Lord, this is all for you, to give you pleasure. This is to make you delighted with us. This business meeting tonight and soup dinner and carol singing, this is for you, Jesus, to bring you pleasure. What if we checked all of our wants and wishes and prejudices and preferences and frustrations and frowns at the door, and we just showed up and said, Lord, this is all for you. This is to give you pleasure. This is to make you delighted with us. It's all about you, Jesus. I think the Holy Spirit would shock us into revival. I think the Holy Spirit would take us by the hand and lead us into times of refreshing from the Lord, like Acts chapter 3 describes. I think the Holy Spirit would roll up his sleeves and say, now there's a church I can work with. It's amazing, but true. God delights and takes pleasure in our worship and in our prayers. Not because Jesus is a narcissist and needs attention. Not because he lacks anything, because he doesn't. He is sufficient in himself. God just loves to give. He loves to quench our thirst. He takes pleasure and delight meeting our needs when we come to Him weak and needy. That's how we please God. That's how we bring Him pleasure and glorify Him. 
We show up weak and needy and say, if you don't help, it's over. I'm toast. That's how we bring him pleasure and glorify him, which is what life is all about, right? It pleases God to give to us and to meet our needs. And that means he takes more delight in giving than receiving. He actually wants to meet our needs. He actually wants to hear our prayers. He wants to forgive our sins. He wants to fellowship and have communion with us. And in Haggai's day, the people of God totally forgot this. And that's why the temple lay in ruins. They forgot that God loves to commune with sinners and they let their hearts drift from the Lord. And we're just like them. We drift, we stray, and God pursues us. That's the history of God's people on every page of the Bible. And when we drift and stray, God does things to get our attention because He loves us so much. That's how much He loves us. In 520 BC, God was gently getting their attention. He was pressing on a bruise. He he didn't wipe out all of their crops. In His kindness, He didn't wipe out all of their crops. They weren't starving, but they weren't satisfied. And that's the key idea here. They had the basic necessities of life, but they weren't satisfied with life. They weren't enjoying life. They weren't enjoying God. And so the way back was humility and repentance and setting their hearts on asphalt. And the same is true for us. If we will slow down and get low before the Lord, He will meet us. If we will draw near to God, He will draw near to us, James 4, 8. And He already has drawn near to us in the incarnation, in the person and work of His Son, Jesus. So why wouldn't He draw near to us now? He already has. And He's willing to meet us to meet us in our mess, to meet us in our 2020 weariness and exhaustion. He's ready to renew us. And the way we get there is the same way that Israel got there in Haggai's day. Repentance. We don't like repentance, do we? It's liver and prune juice. But if we want to be renewed, We have to consider our ways and look at our hearts, set our hearts on the road, on asphalt, and see what we love and cherish more than Jesus and be willing to forsake those things. Listen, if I told you the things that I love and cherish more than Jesus some days, you wouldn't want to be my friend. You'd be like, that's weird. How petty. That? You want that to bring you joy? Yeah, Listen, we can and you can end 2020 on a bang if you humble yourself. You can look back on 2020 and remember how God met you during Advent at the end of a really terrible year and how he redeemed the whole year. And you can roll into 2021 with enthusiasm and expectancy. That's available for every single person here. But you have to humble yourself and invite the Holy Spirit to come do some heart surgery on you. You have to be honest with where you are, with where your heart is. If you have a case of the blahs this Christmas season, you have to be honest with God about it. 
If you say, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm just not feeling it this year, then that's where you start. With faith in God's redeeming power and honesty about what's going on in your heart. Faith and trust in His ability to change things and redeem things, and then honesty about what's really going on in your heart. That's what it takes. Will you trust that God can and does love you at your worst? Do you believe that God can see you at your worst and then willingly meet you at your worst so that He can reassure you of His love and begin transforming you? It takes honesty and trust to get there. And He is willing to meet you there with His mercy. Isn't that great? God is willing to meet us at the lowest, most embarrassing places of our lives. I love that about Him. He is willing to meet me at the embarrassing places of my life and in my heart. Because I have a lot of low, embarrassing places in my life where I need to meet Him. Can you admit that today? That's the other way that we can experience renewal and refreshment as we close out this year and begin another one. If we can get honest about our hearts, but then also confess that to others. Oh, that's kind of scary, isn't it? What does James tell us? James 4, 8, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Then in James 5.16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so if we humble ourselves, God will draw near to us. And then if we confess our sins to God and to one another, we'll find healing. Have you ever done this? Have you found this to be true? Have you ever confessed your sins to someone and you just felt the weight lift? Felt the chains break? I did that this week with my wife Heather. I confessed some very silly, petty, immature thoughts I was having. Even thoughts that I was kind of entertaining with glee. Do you ever entertain thoughts with glee? Thoughts of like revenge, and if they say this, I'll do this. It's like, ooh, that's good, yeah. I just came clean with Heather and said, here's what I'm thinking about this situation, and here's the evil, wicked, silly, petty thoughts that I'm hoping happen. I'll just stick it to them. And I just admitted it. And I went into the room and I said, I have sin to confess. And she was like, what? <laughs> Ugh, just pulled back my heart and said, here's how awful I am. And it was embarrassing. But I felt the weight lift. Who knew? Revealing how sinful and wicked we are could actually bring the freedom that we all so desperately crave. If you want a fresh start at the end of 2020 and you want to roll into 2021, Just start with where you are. Start with where you feel most discouraged and defeated. Start with the sins that so easily plague you. And just tell Jesus, this is where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm discouraged and feel defeated. This is how I feel about that person that really bothers me. These are the ways that I'm coveting and lusting over things. This is what I'm angry about. Here's where I'm entertaining evil thoughts about others and how I'm sadly getting joy out of it. Help me to forsake it. That's how revival comes. 
That's how renewal comes. That's how refreshment comes. Getting real with the real Jesus. When we drag our darling sins, kicking and screaming into the light where they die. Ray Ortland said, let's confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. No one grows in isolation. We grow in safe community. Sadly, such an experience is rare in our churches. It should be common among us gospel people. It should be our lifestyle. We should be obvious, even scandalous as friends of sinners. But so often, someone must break the ice. I see no revival in our future without a new culture of confession. Personally, I have found a good way to measure my own honesty is the level of my embarrassment. If I'm not embarrassed by my confession, I'm still holding out. But it is freeing to come clean with a brother or sister and receive the ministry of prayer. What if in 2012, that's when he wrote it, and I'll add 2020 and 2021, what if we were, to one another, unshockable friends, down on our knees together, not judging one another, but praying for one another? Surely God's nearness would be there. That's what I want for us as a church family as we close out this year and begin another. The kindness of Jesus leading us to repentance, which is what he was doing in Haggai's day. His kindness didn't wipe out all their crops. His kindness didn't blow away all their money. He was kindly wooing them to repentance, to consider their ways, to throw their hearts out on the road and examine them. That's what I want for us. The kindness and mercy of Jesus welcoming people who are messed up like us, welcoming us into his presence and leading us to repentance, leading us to confession. Will it be embarrassing? Yeah, it will when we confess what's inside of us. But repentance brings healing and freedom. But somebody's got to break the ice. Somebody in your world, if you have a close friend, brother, sister in the Lord, someone you know, someone's got to break the ice in that relationship and come clean and start confessing. Let's break the ice with one another. Let's confess to one another and find healing. Surely God's goodness would be there, right? And the good news is that we have Jesus. He has drawn near to us already. He died for us. We're in union with Him. And we can have even sweeter communion with Him if we get low before Him. If we humble ourselves and consider our ways, He will draw near to us. And that is what life is all about. It's all about Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. It's all about Jesus drawing near to us. So welcome him this Advent season. Open your heart to him. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. And confess and experience times of refreshing from the Lord. I really think that's the answer. Repentance. Who would have thought? Who's, who's going around saying the key to enjoying life and enjoying God again at the end of 2020 is repentance? Nobody's saying that, but I think that's the key from the text here, to consider our ways. 
Who doesn't want more times of refreshing from the Lord? I know I do. Sign me up. I want times of refreshing from the Lord for us. Beginning today, all through Advent and Christmas and rolling into the new year. It's what I'm praying for. It's what I am believing and trusting God for. Will you join me? Let's pray for times of refreshing from the Lord. And let's believe that he is more than willing to give it to us. He's willing. He's willing. If we'll humble ourselves and say, I've just been waiting to shower you with this. Wait for you to humble yourselves. May God grant us these very times of refreshing during this Advent season. May he be pleased to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we confess that we're a mess. We are sinners. We, we still cling to things, thinking they will bring us joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. Lord, I am guilty of coveting and wanting the smallest tiny thing, thinking it will satisfy me. And stupidly, I keep doing it over and over again. I keep coming back to stuff instead of you. And so, Lord, I confess before my brothers and sisters this morning, I'm a sinner and I need your spirit. Oh, Lord, we want times of refreshing. May we come clean with people that we're close to. May, may we as families gather around the table some point this month and just confess our sins and admit that we need you. And Lord, would you please bring times of refreshing for us so that you would be pleased in us, and that you would be glorified here. Life is all about you, Jesus. We want grace to be all about you. Do it for your pleasure. Do it for your glory and do it for our freedom. We ask in your name, amen.